Section 4 of Mr. Fortune's Practice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Tommy Hersant, Carlsbad, California. Mr. Fortune's Practice by H. C. Bailey. Case 3. The Young Doctor. Mr. Reginald Fortune came into Superintendent Bell's room at Scotland Yard. "'That was chocolate cream,' he said placidly. "'You'd better arrest the aunt.' The superintendent took up his telephone receiver and spoke into it fervently. "'You remember the unpleasant affair of the aunt and her niece's child?' "'Oh, fat white woman that nobody loves,' Mr. Fortune murmured. "'Well, well, she's not wholesome, you know. "'Some little air in the ductless glands.' "'She's for it,' said Superintendent Bell with grim satisfaction. "'That's a wicked woman, Mr. Fortune, and as clever as sin.' "'Yes, uh, quite unhealthy, a dull case, Bell.' He yawned and wandered about the room and came to a stand by the desk. "'Oh, what are these curios?' He pointed to a skeleton key and a pad of cotton wool. "'The evidence in that young doctor's case, the Bloomsbury diamond burglary, not worth keeping, I suppose. That was a bad business, though. I was sorry for the lad.' "'But it was a straight case. Uh, "'Did you read it, sir? "'A young fellow making a start, hard fight for it on his beam-ends, "'gets to know a man with a lot of valuable stuff in his rooms and steals it? Hmm. "'An impudent robbery, too. "'But that's the usual way when a decent fellow goes wrong. "'He loses his head.' "'Lead us not into temptation. "'That's the moral of Dr. Wilton's case. "'He's only thirty. "'He's a clever fellow. "'He ought to have done well. "'He's ruined himself. "'And if he'd had a hundred pounds in the bank, "'he'd have run straight enough. "'A lot of crime is a natural product,' "'Mr. Fortune repeated a favorite maxim of his.' "'I didn't read it, Bell. How did it go?' He sat down and lit a cigar. "'The trial was in this morning's papers, sir. Only a small affair. Dr. Horace Wilton came out of the army with a gratuity and a little money of his own. He set up as a specialist, you know, the usual thing.' his plate up with three or four others on a Harley Street house, where he had a little consulting room to himself. He lived in a uh, Bloomsbury flat. Well, the patients didn't come. Uh, he wasn't known. He had no friends, and his money began to run out. Poor devil, Reggie nodded. A Dutch diamond merchant called Wit came to live in the flats. Wilton got to know him, prescribed for a cold or something. Wit took to the doctor, made friends, heard about his troubles, offered to get him a berth in the Dutch colonies, gave him two or three rough diamonds, a delicate way of giving him money, I suppose. 
Then one morning, the valet, a service flats they are, a coming into Wit's room, a found him heavily asleep. He'd been chloroformed. There was that pad on his pillow. Reggie took up the box in which the cotton wool and the skeleton key lay. Oh, don't shake it, said the superintendent. Do you see those scraps of tobacco? That's important. The bureau in which Wit kept the diamonds he had with him had been forced open, and the diamonds were gone. Wit sent for the police. Uh, now, you see that tobacco on the cotton wool? The inspector spotted that. The cotton wool must have been handled by a man who smoked that tobacco, most likely carried it in the same pocket. Hmm? Unusual stuff, isn't it? Well, the inspector remarked on that to Wit. Wit was horrified. You see, it's South African tobacco, and he knew Wilton used the stuff. There was some spilt in the room, too. Uh, have you got that? said Reggie. Oh, no, I don't think it was produced. But our man saw it, and he's reliable. Uh, there's a Dutch journalist stopped in. He was just over in England. He'd called on Wit late the night before and couldn't make him hear. That surprised him, because as he came up, he had seen someone coming out of Wit's room, someone who went into Wilton's. That was enough to act on. Wilton was arrested, and his flat was searched. Tucked away in the window seat, they found the diamonds and that skeleton key. He stood his trial yesterday. He made no defense but to swear that he knew nothing about it. The evidence was clear. Wit, he must be a soft-hearted old fellow. Uh, Wit tried to let him down as gently as he could and asked the judge to go easy with him. Old Borrowdale gave him five years. Hmm, a stiff sentence. But the case itself would break the man's career. Poor chap. A bad business, sir, isn't it? Impudent, ungrateful piece of thieving. But he might have been honest enough if he could have made a living at his job. Mr. Fortune did not answer. He was looking at the key. He set it down, took up a magnifying glass, carried the box to the light, and frowned over the cotton wool. "'What's the matter with it, sir?' "'The key,' Mr. Fortunes mumbled, still studying the cotton wool. Uh, "'Why was the key made in Germany? Uh, "'Why does Dr. Horace Wilton of Harley Street and Bloomsbury "'use a skeleton key that was made in Solingen?' Well, sir, you can't tell how a man comes by that sort of stuff. It goes about from hand to hand, don't it? Uh, yes. Whose hand? said Reggie. And why does your local expert swear this is South African tobacco? 
Oh, there is a likeness. But this is that awful stuff they sell in Germany and call Rauchtabach. Bell was startled. Oh, that's awkward, sir. German, too, huh? Oh, well, you can buy Selingan goods outside Germany, and German tobacco, too. Um, say, in Holland. I don't know what you're thinking, sir. Oh, I think the tobacco was a little error. I think the tobacco ought not to have been there. But it was rather unlucky for Dr. Wilton. Your bright expert took it for his brand. The superintendent looked uncomfortable. Uh, yes, sir, that's the sort of thing we don't want to happen. But after all, the case didn't turn on the tobacco. There was the man who swore he saw Wilton leaving Witt's flat and finding of the diamonds in Wilton's room. Uh, without the tobacco, the evidence was clear. I know. I said the tobacco was superfluous. Uh, that's why it interests me. Superfluous. Not to say awkward. Uh, we know Wilton don't use Rauchtabak, yet there is Rauchtabak on the chloroformed pad, which suggests that someone else was on the job, uh, some fellow with a taste for German flavors, the sort of fellow who'd use a German key. Oh, there's not a sign of Wilton's having an accomplice, said Bell heavily. But of course it's possible. Mr. Fortune looked at him with affection. Dear Bell, he said, you must find the world very wonderful. No, I wouldn't look for an accomplice, but I think you might look for the diamond merchant and the journalist. I should like to ask them who smokes Rochtabach. Oh, there must be an investigation, Bell sighed. I see that, sir. But I can't see that it will do the poor fellow any good, and it's bad for the department. Reggie smiled upon him. Historic picture of an official struggling with his humanity, hmm, he said. Poor old Bell. At the end of that week, Mr. Fortune was summoned to Scotland Yard. He found the chief of the criminal investigation department in conference with Edis, a man of law from the home office. Hello, life is real. Life is earnest, isn't it, Lomas? He smiled. The Honorable Sidney Lomas put up an eyeglass and scowled at him. You know, you're not a man of science. You're an agitator. You ought to be bound over to keep the peace. I should call him a departmental nuisance, said Edis gloomily. In returning thanks, uh, one of your larger cigars would uh, do me no harm, Lomas. I would only ask, uh, where does it hurt you? The Wilton case was a very satisfactory case till you meddled, said Edis. Also, it was a show's juchet. And now it's unjudged? How good for you, Reggie chuckled. How stimulating. Now, 
said Loomis severely. It's insane. It's a nightmare. Oh, yes, yes, I dare say that's what Dr. Wilton thinks, said Reggie gravely. Well, how far have you got? You were right about the tobacco, confound you, and the key, both of German birth. And will you kindly tell me what that means? My honorable friend's question, said Reggie, should be addressed to Meinherr Witt or Meinherr Gerard. You know, this is like Alice in Wonderland. Sentence first, trial afterwards. Why didn't you look into the case before you tried it? Then you could have asked Wit and Gerhard these little questions when you had them in the box, and very interesting, too. We can't ask them now, at any rate. They're vanished. Wit left his flat on the day of the trial. Gerhard left his hotel the same night. Both said they were going back to Amsterdam. And here's the Dutch police information. Uh, your telegram of the 27th not understood. No men as described known in Amsterdam cannot trace arrivals. Well, well, said Reggie. Our active and intelligent police force. The case has interest, hasn't it, Lomas, old thing? What is it you want to suggest, Fortune? Edis looked at him keenly. I want to point out the evanescence of the evidence, the extraordinary evanescence of the evidence. Uh, that's agreed, Edis nodded. The whole thing is unsatisfactory. The tobacco, so far as it is evidence, turns out to be in favor of the prisoner. The only important witnesses for the prosecution disappear after the trial, leaving suspicion of their status. But there remains the fact that the diamonds were found in the prisoner's room. Oh, yes, someone put them there. Reggie smiled. Uh, let's have it clear, Fortune, said the man of the law. Your suggestion is that the whole case against Wilton was manufactured by these men who have disappeared? Uh, that is the provisional hypothesis, uh, because nothing else covers the facts. Uh, there were German materials used, and Wilton has nothing to do with Germany. Uh, the diamond merchant came to the flats where Wilton was already living and sought Wilton's acquaintance. The diamond merchant's friend popped up just in the nick of time to give indispensable evidence. And the moment Wilton is safe in penal servitude, the pair of them vanish. And the only thing we can find out about them is that they aren't what they pretended to be. Well, the one hypothesis which fits all these facts is that these two fellows wanted to put Dr. Horace Wilton away. Uh, any objection to that, Edis? There's only one objection. Why? Your theory explains everything that happened, but leaves us without any reason why anything happened at all. That is, 
it's an explanation which makes the case more obscure than ever. We can understand why Wilton might have stolen diamonds. Nobody can understand why anyone would want to put him in prison. Oh, my dear fellow, you're so legal. What you don't know isn't knowledge. You don't know why Wilton had to be put out of the way. No more do I. But I know more did Wilton, said Edis sharply. He didn't suspect these fellows. His defense didn't suggest that he had any enemies. He only denied all knowledge of the theft, and his counsel argued that the real thief had used his rooms to hide the diamonds in because he was surprised and scared. Yes, that was pretty feeble, wasn't it? These lawyers, Edis, these lawyers, a stodgy tribe. We do like evidence. Oh, then why not use it? The man Wit was very interesting in the box. He said that in the kindness of his heart, he had offered this ungrateful young doctor a job in the Dutch colonies, quite a nice long way from England, Edis. Wilton wouldn't take it. So, Wilton had to be provided for otherwise. Edis looked at him thoughtfully. I agree there's something in that, but... Why? We know all about Wilton. He's run quite straight till now. Hospital career, military service, this private practice all straightforward and creditable. How should he have enemies who stick at nothing to get him out of the way? A man in a gang of criminals or revolutionaries is sometimes involved in a sham crime by the others to punish him, or for fear he should betray them. But that can't be Wilton's case. His life's all open and ordinary. I suppose a man might have private enemies who would use such a trick, though I don't know another case. Oh, Lord, yes, said Lomas. There was the Buckler affair. I always thought that was the motive in the Brendan murder, Edis frowned. Well, as you say, but Wilton has no suspicion of a trumped-up case. He doesn't know his enemies. No, said Reggie. I rather think Wilton don't know what it is he knows. Suppose he blundered on some piece of awkward evidence about Mr. Witt uh, or some of Mr. Witt's friends. He don't know it's dangerous, but they do. Men have been murdered in a case like that and never knew why they were killed, said Lomas. I dare say, Edis cried, it's all quite possible, but it's all in the air. I have nothing that I can act upon. 
"'Oh, I wouldn't say that,' said Reggie. "'You're so modest.' "'Perhaps I am,' Ellis shrugged. "'But I can't recommend Wilton's sentence for revision on a provisional hypothesis.' "'Revision be damned,' Reggie cried. "'I want him free.' Ellis stared at him. "'But this is fantastic,' he protested. "'Free and cleared.' My God, think of the poor beggar in a convict gang because these rascals found him inconvenient. To reduce his sentence is only another wrong. He wants you to give him his life back. It is a hard case. And aside, but what can I do? I can't clear the man's character. "'If we let him out now, he's a broken man.' "'Oh, my dear fellow, I'm saying so,' said Reggie mildly. "'There's also another point. "'What is it Mr. Witt's up to that's so important? "'I could bear to know that.' "'That's not my job,' said Edis with relief. "'But you're still in the air, Fortune. "'What do you want to do? "'I must take some action.' "'And that's very painful to any good official. "'I sympathize with you. "'Lomas sympathize with you more, "'don't you, Lomas, old thing? "'And I'm not sure that you can do any good.' "'Mr. Fortune relapsed into cigar smoke and meditation. "'You're very helpful.' said Edis. The fact is, all the evidence against the man has gone pfft, said Lomas. It's deuced awkward, but we have to face it. Better let him out, Edis. Edis gasped. My dear Lomas, I really can't follow you. The only evidence which is proved false is the tobacco, which wasn't crucial. The rest is open to suspicion, but we can't say it's false. And it satisfied the judge and jury. It's unprecedented to reduce the sentence to nothing in such a case. I'm not thinking of your troubles, said Lomas. I want to know what Mr. Witt has up his sleeve. Reggie came out of his smoke. Uh, let Wilton out. Have him watched and see what Witt and company get up to. Well, that's one way, but it's a gamble. It's also out of the question, Edis announced. Reggie turned on him. What exactly are you for, Ettis? he said. What is the object of your blessed existence? Ettis remarked coldly that it was not necessary to lose one's temper. No, no, I'm not cross with you. But you puzzle my simple mind. I thought your job was to see justice done. Well, get on with it. "'If you'll be so very good as to say what you suggest,' said Edis, flushing. "'You'll say it's unprecedented. "'Well, well, this is my little notion. "'Tell the defense about the tobacco and say that that offers a ground for carrying the case to the Court of Appeal.' 
Then let it get into the papers that there's a doubt about the conviction, probably of the Wilton case being tried again, and so on. Something rather pompous and mysterious to set the papers going strong about Wilton. Hmm. He smiled at Lomas. I think we could wangle that. I have known it done, said Lomas. "'Good heavens! I couldn't have any dealings with the press!' Edis cried. "'Bless your sweet innocence. We'll manage it. "'It don't matter what the papers say, so long as they say a lot. "'That'll wake up Witten Company, and we'll see what happens.' Edis looked horrified and bewildered. I think it is clear the defense should be advised of the flaw discovered in the evidence in order that the conviction may be reviewed by the Court of Appeal, he said solemnly. But, of course, I I couldn't sanction anything more. That's all right, my dear fellow, Lomas smiled. Nobody sanctions these things and nobody does them. They only happen. And Edis was got rid of. "'My country, oh, my country,' Reggie groaned. "'That's the kind of man that governs England.' A day or two later saw Mr. Fortune shivering on an April morning outside Princetown Prison. He announced to the governor that he wanted to get to know Dr. Wilton. "'I don't think you'll make much of him,' the governor shook his head. The man seems stupefied. Of course, a fellow who has been in a good position often is so when he comes here. Wilton's taken it very hard. When we told him that there was a flaw in the evidence and he could appeal against his sentence, he showed no interest. He was sullen and sour, as, as he has been all the time. All he would say was, what's the good you've done for me? Poor devil, Reggie sighed. It may be, the governor looked dubious. No one can judge a man's character on his first days in prison, but I've known men who gave me a good deal more reason to believe them innocent. Dr. Wilton was brought in a shred of a man in his prison clothes. A haggard face glowed at Reggie. My name, Fortune, Dr. Wilton. I come from Scotland Yard. I, I found the mistake which had been made about the tobacco. It made me very interested in your case. I feel sure we don't know the truth of it. Uh, if you can help me uh, to that, it's going to help you. He waited. The police can't help me, said Wilton. I'm not going to say anything. Oh, my dear chap, I know that was a bad blunder, but there's more than that wants looking into. If you'll give us a chance, we might be able to clear up the whole case and, 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 and set you on your feet again. That's what I'm here for. And Wilton laughed. <laughs> no, thanks, he said unpleasantly. Oh, just think of it. I can't do you any harm. I'm looking for the truth. I'm on your side. 
What I want to know is, have you got any enemies? Anyone who might like to damage you? Anybody who wanted to put you out of the way? Only the police, said Wilton. Oh, my dear chap, <laughs> Reggie brushed that away. Did anything strange ever happen to you before this charge? What? Wilton flushed. Oh, I see. I'm an old criminal, am I? Better look for my previous convictions, or you can invent them quite easy. My dear chap, what good can this do you? said Reggie sadly. The police didn't invent this charge. Your friend Mr. Witt made it. Do you know anything about Mr. Witt? Did it ever occur to you he wanted you off the scene, in the Dutch colonies, or in prison? I have nothing against wit, said Wilton. Oh, my dear fellow, how did the diamonds get in your room? Yes, how did they? said Wilton savagely. Ask your police inspector. The man who said that was my tobacco. You're a policeman. You know how these jobs are done. I wish I did, Reggie sighed. If I did, I dare say you wouldn't be here. But he couldn't get no more out of Dr. Wilton. He went away sorrowful. He had not recovered his spirits when he sought Lomas next morning. Lomas was brisk. You're the man I want. What's the convict's theory of it? Reggie shook his head. Lomas, old thing, do I ever seem a little vain of my personal charm? The sort of fellow who thinks fellows can't resist him? Oh, nothing offensive, Fortune. A little childlike, perhaps. Uh, you do admire yourself, don't you? Quoth the raven, nevermore. When you find me feeling fascinating again, kindly murmur the name Wilton. I didn't fascinate him, not one little damn. He was impossible. Oh, you surprise me said Lomas gravely. Nothing out of him at all? Too much, too much, ah, Reggie sighed. Sullen, insolent, stupid. That was our young doctor. Poor devil. It was the wicked police that did him in. A put-up job by the force. The inspector hid the diamonds in his room despite him. Such was Dr. Horace Wilton the common, silly criminal to the life. It means nothing, of course. The poor beggar's dazed, like a child kicking the naughty chair that he fell over. I'm not so sure, said Lomas. The inspector has shot himself, Fortune. We had him up here, you know, to inquire into the case. He was nervous and confused. He went back home and committed suicide. Reggie Fortune huddled himself together in his chair. Nothing against the man before. There's only this question of the tobacco against him now. But it looks ugly, doesn't it? 
We know he said the tobacco was what it isn't. If that made him kill himself, he was too conscientious for a policeman. Poor beggar! Why does it look ugly, Lomas? I think it's pitiful. My God, if we all shot ourselves or we made mistakes, there would be vacancies in the force. Poor Wilton said the inspector put the diamonds in his room, but that's crazy. It's all crazy. You are a little confused yourself, Fortune. You say it's preposterous for the man to shoot himself merely because he made a mistake and equally preposterous to suppose he had any other reason. Poor beggar, poor beggar, Reggie murmured. No, Lomas, I'm not confused. I'm only angry. Wilton's not guilty, and your inspector's not guilty, and one's in prison and one's dead, and we call ourselves policemen. Shutting the stable door after the horse is stolen, that's a policeman's job. But great heavens, we don't even shut the door. Lomas shook his head. Not only angry, I fear, but rattled. My dear Fortune, what can we do? Wit hasn't shown his hand? Not unless he had a hand in the inspector's suicide. I suppose it was suicide? Well, you'd better look at the body. The evidence is good enough. Oh, nothing in the papers? Lomas stared at him. Oh, columns, of course, all quite futile. You didn't expect evidence in the papers, did you? You never know, you know. You don't put a proper value on the press, Lomas. It has been remarked of Mr. Fortune that when he is interested, he will do everything himself. This is considered by professional critics a weakness. Yet, in this case of the young doctor, where he was continually occupied with details, he seems to have kept a clear head for strategy. He went to see the inspector's body in the mortuary. He came out in gloomy thought. Satisfied, sir, said Superintendent Bell, who escorted him. Reggie stopped and stared at him. Oh, Peter, what a word, he muttered. Satisfied? No, Bell, not satisfied. Only infuriated. He killed himself, all right, poor beggar. One more victim for wit and company. What's the next move, sir? Goodbye, said Mr. Fortune. I'm going home to read the papers. With all the London papers which had appeared since the news that there was a doubt about the justice of Wilton's conviction had been given them, he shut himself into his study. Most of them had taken the hint that there was a mystery in the case, and made a lot of it. The more rational were content to tell the story in detail, pointing out the incongruity of such a man as Wilton and the crime. The more fatuous put out wild inventions as to the theories held by the police. But there was general sympathy with Dr. Wilton, a general readiness to expect that he would be cleared. He had a good press, except for the Daily Watchman. The Daily Watchman begin in the same strain as the rest of the sillier papers, taking Wilton's innocence for granted and devising crazy explanations of the burglary. But on the third day it burst into a different tune. Under a full-page headline, 
the Wilton scandal. Its readers were warned against the manufactured agitation to release the man Wilton. It was a trick of politicians and civil servants and intellectuals to prevent the punishment of a rascally criminal. It was another case of one law for the rich and another for the poor. It was a corrupt job to save a scoundrel who had friends in high places. It was, in fine, all sorts of iniquity, and the British people must rise in their might and keep the wicked Wilton in jail, as they did not want burglars calling every night. Mr. Fortune went to sup at that one of his clubs used by certain journalists. There he sought and at last found Simon Winterbottom, the queerest mixture of scholarship, slang, and backstairs gossip to be found in London. Winter, said he, having stayed the man with flagons, who runs the Daily Watchman? My God, Winterbottom was much affected. Are you well, Reginald? Are you quite well? It's the wonkiest print on the market. All the newspapers are run by madmen, but the watchman merely dithers. Uh, you said on the market, Reggie repeated, uh, corrupt. Well, naturally, too balmy to live honest. Why, this moral fervor, Reginald, I know you're officially a guardian of virtue, but you mustn't let it weigh on your mind. I want to know why the watchman changed sides on the Wilton case. Witherbottom grinned. That was a giddy stunt, wasn't it? Mm. The complete gotterine. <laughs> I don't know, Reginald. Why ask for reasons? Let twenty pass and stone the twenty-first, loving not, hating not, just choosing so. I wonder, Reggie murmured, it's the change of mind, the sudden change of mind. This is rather a bad business, Winter. Oh, Simeon, Winterbottom agreed. His comical face was working. You are taking it hard, Reginald. I'm thinking of that poor devil, Wilton. Who got at the watchman, old thing? I could bear to know. End of section four.